What does it mean to be modern? And what is modernity anyway? I'm Ryan McDermott, host of Genealogies of Modernity, and I'm here to tell you that it's complicated. No, just kidding. In this show, we get a bunch of academics to actually venture answers to some really tough questions. What is genealogy? What are the sources of racism and anti-racism? You might disagree with our answers, but you can find them on Genealogies of Modernity, a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. Leo Tolstoy is considered one of the greatest authors of all time. He wrote some of the most well-known works of literature in the 19th and 20th centuries. His works demonstrated that the novel could exist beyond just entertainment and be used as a tool for understanding people and expanding our tolerance of others. I was really brought back to him when I commenced my current project um, about the regulation of war because I knew that um, there was a moment in uh, his best-known novel, some people think the greatest novel ever written, War and Peace, in which one of his main characters attacks the very idea of regulating war. Professor Samuel Moyne teaches history and law at Yale University. Tolstoy really became world famous, not solely as a novelist, but as a kind of uh, Christian sage. Um, And his arguments about uh, the regulation of war kind of continue into that later period. Tolstoy is remembered not only for his novels, but also for his nonviolent pacifism. He introduced ideas in War and Peace that helped inspire a worldwide push for peace in the early 20th century. Arguably, you know, Tolstoy, who, you know, had a huge influence as a a pacifist, even has an influence uh, amongst those who, you know, don't take up his own ethics, but rather decide that they're going to, you know, in this world, not hold out for you know, utopia, but kind of work to pressure states. And that has a huge effect. It doesn't seem like it, obviously, because World War I and II are both fought. But it's kind of amazing in world historical terms that um, after both of these wars, you have a mass public that demands peace. And statesmen all talk endlessly of how they're going to provide it. And ultimately, we have a United Nations charter that at least in theory, makes aggressive war illegal, which had never been the case in world history. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Samuel Moyne to discuss war and peace. So let's talk about Tolstoy's life. Uh, what were the circumstances of his of his birth, and and what do we know about his development as a writer and thinker? Well, he had an enormously uh, interesting and and above all long life. Uh, he uh, really lived for the bulk of the nineteenth century, uh, and um, kind of was omnipresent in Russian culture after the 1850s. He was born in 1828 and uh, died in in 1910. And he was an aristocrat, so he was a a count. Uh, He had a big estate where um, 
especially in his middle age and later, he spent all of his time um, south of, of Moscow. Tolstoy grew up on this estate and later inherited it from his parents, who both died when he was a child. He studied law at Kazan University, but dropped out halfway through. He spent a couple of years in Moscow, Tula, and St. Petersburg, gambling and drinking. In his mid-twenties, Tolstoy joined the Russian army as an artillery officer and served in the Crimean War. He became very famous as a literary figure in Russia um, for writing some kind of fictionalized firsthand accounts of a siege during the Crimean War on the Crimean Peninsula uh, in, in a place called Sevastopol. He went to Europe twice during the war. On his second trip, he met influential figures such as the writer Victor Hugo and the French anarchist Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. He also witnessed some horrific events, including a public execution in Paris. This was a turning point for him. After this event, he began to see government as a conspiracy designed to exploit and corrupt its citizens. From that moment onward, he vowed never to serve any government again. These experiences were hugely influential for young Tolstoy. They transformed him from a privileged, aristocratic author to a nonviolent anarchist. And actually, that, that's the moment when he first begins to worry about the idea of making war more humane. This idea stayed with Tolstoy until the end of his life. He illustrates it in his famous 1867 novel, War and Peace. At its core, War and Peace is a story about aristocrats and the Russian people experiencing the Napoleonic invasions um, of their homeland. And it's, it's, a, it's a kind of nationalist book because it's an account of how uh, Napoleon is defeated by the genius of the Russian people more so than by uh, the aristocrats and even the Tsar who, who, who lead the country. The novel focuses on France's invasion of Russia in 1812, led by Napoleon Bonaparte. It's, of course, told through a series of, of aristocratic characters. Um, and, and maybe the, the most important three are um, André, who's um, a prince, uh, and uh, Pierre Bezukhov, who is, is probably the kind of implicit hero and both of them are in love at various points uh, with uh, Natasha, who has a, a fascinating kind of spiritual and emotional trajectory of her own. There are hundreds of characters in the novel, um, and the the backdrop of, of what was then world history, the biggest events in world history, and a kind of the resolution of history in one direction rather than another. There is one passage in particular where Tolstoy makes his worries about humane war clear. The passage occurs um, the evening before uh, the great battle during the campaign of 1812 when Napoleon is pushing to the east. The battle takes place at a place called Baradino, uh, and Prince André is, is, you know, talking with Pierre uh, Bezukhov, the, the evening before about, you know, how to think about what's coming um, in their lives. Uh, Pierre asks André whether he thinks the war, battle will be won tomorrow. 
Uh, yes, yes, Prince Andrei said distractedly. Uh, one thing I would do if I had power, it, I would not take prisoners. What are prisoners? It's chivalry. The French devastated my home and are on their way to devastate Moscow. And they've offended me and offend me every second. They're my enemies. They're all criminals to my mind. They must be executed. If they're my enemies, they can't be friends. Yes, yes, uh, said Pierre, gazing at Prince André with flashing eyes. I agree with you completely. Take no prisoners, uh, Prince André went on. That alone would change the whole war and make it less cruel. As it is, we've been playing at war. That's the nasty thing. We act magnanimously and all that. It's like the magnanimity and sentimentality of the lady who swoons when she sees a calf slaughtered. She's so kind she can't bear the sight of blood, but she eats the same calf uh, in sauce with great appetite. Uh, we're told about the rules of war, about chivalry. It's all nonsense. Take no prisoners, uh, but kill and go to your death. Whoever has come to this, as I have, through the same sufferings, uh, uh, would reach this conclusion. If there was none of this magnanimity in war, we'd go to it only when there was something worth certain death. So um, the passage concludes when uh, Prince Andre says, the whole point would be to cast off the lie as you know, giving up hypocrisy. If it's war, it's war and not a game. There weren't any official laws of war at the time, nationally or internationally, but there were customs. It was widely understood that if someone surrendered, you would take them prisoner and look after them, feed them and treat them humanely. And especially if they laid down their arms and surrendered, you wouldn't kill them. Um, but you could. Um, and so uh, Prince Andre says, I wouldn't take them prisoner. I, I think it would be better if we kind of switch presumptions and just executed all of those who, whom we beat. Um, they surrender, we force them to lay their arms down, then we would execute them. Because this would make people understand, not least the participants themselves, what war really is, which is killing, uh, which is the height of immorality. It's murder by any other name. Um, and he suggests that if we did that, um, we wouldn't let our states go to war as often. It would only happen when it was really worth incurring the immorality. Um, uh, now, this is an amazing, I think, passage because it's really like the opposite of what we think today. At the very time Tolstoy was writing his novel, in Switzerland, um, the first Geneva Convention was um, created, which is precisely about protecting wounded soldiers. The first Geneva Convention Treaty was created in Geneva, Switzerland in 1864. This agreement defined the basic rights of wartime prisoners and ensured sick and wounded soldiers would be treated humanely. And in our politics, you know, we think war crimes are like the worst thing ever. You know, we had um, a whole debate in American politics about how horrible torture is, um, not war, not endless war, but but what happens to those we capture? 
And so what amazed me when I read it was Andre's just, you know, unceremonious rejection of everything we're supposed to believe, which is that the worst thing about war is war crimes. The best thing to do is to condemn in advance um, the way war, the, the, the immorality in the way war is fought. And the reason he says we must do so is because it would help us avoid war itself. At an earlier point in the novel, Prince Andre himself benefits from these humane war customs. He is wounded in the Battle of Austerlitz, and his enemy Napoleon shows him mercy and takes care of him. And kind of out of the kindness of his, of his heart, the emperor um, decides that there should be a little humanity in warfare. Um, and so it's it's the height of irony that Andre who has, has benefited from this generosity earlier in the novel um, and, uh, you know, at the hands of no, no less a figure than Napoleon, um, that Prince Andre is going to reject this whole idea of humanity and warfare. By prettifying war, we just help perpetuate it. Um, one of the things that comes through is, is the same concern with the hypocrisy of war, um, which is linked, I think, probably to his his same critiques of um, the aristocracy. And it's the way that aesthetic splendor and aestheticized warfare covers the true gruesomeness and cruelty and, you know, disgust. Um, and it seems like Tolstoy was just able to see more clearly, you know, the rotting corpse rather than the gleaming horse. Yes, yes. I mean... There are, there are tons of examples of this indictment of hypocrisy in all of his writings. Um, in, in that sense, the, the prettification of war and, and the sense that we're good enough people if we make it humane while tolerating it um, is just one example of um, a, an indictment of civilization that so-called that he leveled um, at, at all kinds of practices. In the 1870s, Tolstoy went through another transformation. At this point, he had completed his two best-known works, War and Peace and Anna Karenina, and he found himself crippled by existential despair. He was paralyzed by the idea of death. Impressed by the faith of the common people, he turned to religion for answers. And then he has this kind of um, conversion experience. Most famously, he, he gives up um, violence and he, he reshapes his life around uh, essentially not Christianity, and he's excommunicated by the Russian Orthodox Church, but around ser the Sermon on the Mount and especially the, what Jesus has to say in Matthew 5, resist not evil. Um, which he interprets in a certain way, um, which leads him to condemn war, uh, condemn eating animals, abstain from, from sex. Tolstoy lived the later part of his life by five tenets. Be not angry, do not lust, do not take oaths, do not resist evil, and love your enemies. For him, non-resistance to evil did not mean that he would accept evil, but rather that he would not fight evil with evil particularly violence. 
This approach was especially influential for other nonviolent pacifists, including the Indian social activist Mahatma Gandhi. Tolstoy expanded on the critiques he made in War and Peace and started looking outside the scope of war. In that period, around 1890, he was asked to write the preface to an early kind of vegetarian ethics manual. And he, he Tolstoy decided he would travel to, not to his local butcher, you know, which are just little, you know, near his estate, little outposts, but to the nearest big town um, where he'd heard there was a new facility a modern slaughterhouse, which had been built precisely to make animal slaughter more humane. Tolstoy wrote about this experience in an essay called The First Step, first published in 1900. And he says the same thing, that isn't it hypocritical that there are so many people, he uses the example of a kind of wealthy woman again, so it's a gendered parable, Um, people who rest content with the fact that their animals are slaughtered humanely while still eating them. And above all, he's making a point about the the bad faith of, of audiences who say, there are these necessary evils, but if I've made them more humane, I'm a good person. Um, and that's just like the lady already in War and Peace he sees is, is a hypocrite for allowing herself to believe that her she's she's a, a morally good person by demanding humanity in the slaughter of no, of non-human animals. Tolstoy um, referred to slavery um, to help us think through this same problem of of you know the effort or the um, the intention to humanize can prolong suffering rather than eradicate it. Could you tell us what what was he saying about American or, or other slavery? So, um, you know, it, it is a separate argument in the sense that um, if you if you indict the bad faith of an audience, it, it doesn't exactly matter if um, they're they're the they're recognizing their hypocrisy and abandoning it would make a difference. It's still wrong, um, but he did often make arguments about how actually making the, these terrible practices more humane um, made them more long-lasting. And his favorite example was chattel slavery. Chattel slavery was the most common form of slavery in the Americas. Human beings were bought, sold, traded, and inherited as property. The United States and parts of Europe supported this practice during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, and it was a key foundation of their economies. And so it's just like with war, there were laws to make slavery less cruel. And Tolstoy says, after the fact of an abolitionist movement that has succeeded, we look back and we say, what an outrage that people tried to make slavery humane especially if, and some historians think this happened, making slavery humane made slavery last longer. So Tolstoy says, if that's the case, how can we risk the moral error of allowing war to last forever or certain wars to be what we call forever wars, like in our current history, um, in the, when, when we make them humane? 
Now, there are fair responses to this kind of argument. You might say, well, we could eradicate chattel slavery, even though no one thought so for millennia. Uh, and it's just not the case with war. And for that reason, um, we should make it humane instead. Tolstoy believed that by making war more humane, it paradoxically made it more permanent and harder to challenge. I think that was Tolstoy's ultimate position because, of course, he became a pacifist, um, not, not someone who, like Prince Andrei, was calling for more brutal war in the name of peace, but someone who just said, turn the other cheek, don't fight. But then you have things like humane occupations and humane wars that seem to be low-level, tolerable um, domination. Um, and it's not as if, you know, giving up the cycle of violence leaves you with peace. On the contrary, they leave you with endless occupation and, and drone warfare and special forces. Um, and so we have an invisible war that goes on forever. Let's go to the mindset of um, that nice lady who condemned the poor animals, but enjoyed her roast lamb. Um, is it a failure of imagination? Is it that you can't get you can't get to abolition until after the fact? And so you require a vanguard of the, the particularly imaginative progressives. Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, we're all we're all morally compromised. We're all, you know, living even if we're weak in the midst of unjust structures uh, and we're all, I mean, the goal, I think, of anyone who's decrying hypocrisy is not to pretend to purity. Um, but that doesn't mean we can less, let hypocrisy pass either. So I, I think um, he's saying we're, we're weak and we allow ourselves out of our complacency, um, you know, to tolerate things we ought to consider wrong. Tolstoy drew on the abolition of slavery as a model for how we can eradicate other aspects of our modern world, aspects that we've tolerated for centuries, but know are wrong. And Tolstoy says, now we, we have, it's, math, it's a mass conviction that slavery is not only wrong, but can be abandoned. And so the question is how we got over that threshold, which is an amazing fact that anyone given the track record ever did cross it. And he really says, just, just consider that the same step might be available with respect to other practices like war and eating animals and, and so forth. Is there a political philosophy behind his nonviolent tendencies like if we're deciding, okay, this practice is immoral and should be abolished, or this practice is immoral and should be abolished, how how would we use Tolstoy's guide um, to help us? It's a great question, and and I'm personally not sure we would want to go all the way with him. It it's not a full fledged, um, let's say, political philosophy that you know maybe you or I could defend, but he did take it pretty far, um, and. He, you know, these books that are less read now, but are, you know, were enormously influential on Gandhi and so forth, um, do deserve serious consideration. Tolstoy 
felt that violent revolution was just a recipe for domination um, and rejected uh, violent violence, um, including violent revolution. But it, it was in the name of a kind of abolitionist movement. And, you know, it, it is totally applicable, not just to animal rights movements in our day, but also to pr- prison abolition, which used to be unthinkable. Now is, you know, multiple issues of the Harvard Law Review are about ab- prison abolition. Um, it, it's true that he never worked out the nonviolence. Like at one point he says, well, of course you can kill a mosquito, but why? And there's a big debate about, well, can, what can you do with animals even if you don't eat them? I mean, can you use them for, can you use the sheep for wool? And what are we exactly ruling out? What is, what is that, what does non-resistance mean? And ultimately Tolstoy was an anarchist. You know, he, he basically thought if everyone just became a Christian in his sense, we wouldn't need government. But there's no doubt we're all on journeys and who knows where it'll lead and, and where we all need to be going in these times, especially. Yeah, I mean, what happens if Napoleon attacks your country? Do you turn the other cheek? It, it it opens up the fear of imperialism by other forces who are, you know, not willing to live by Tolstoy's Christianity. Absolutely. You know, most Americans think, well, you can't appease evil, you know, and, and this experience of the great debate, so-called in 1938 through 41, um, in which America kind of pivoted to world armed supremacy after kind of stand a standoffish attitude, at least when it came to European wars, has left us with this very powerful legacy where Americans don't really think that peace is the answer because Hitler, you know, you can't you can't appease you can't appease Hitler, you can't appease Saddam, you can't appease Gaddafi. The trouble is we haven't had an American war in a very long time, which has made the world better. Um, Actually, since World War II, arguably, um, all the wars America has fought have been disastrous mistakes. So, you know, I think we need to, you know, unlearn a little bit the lesson that Americans learned uh, and really the whole world in the face of Adolf Hitler that, you know, violence is absolutely appropriate and legitimate and necessary because it's usually not and it most often makes the world worse. You know, we could we could turn the tables on him and say, well, what if by not intervening, you know, in the name of your pure ethics, you end up making the world worse? Like what if the United States hadn't been dragged into World War II against its will? Um, now it's all Americans would say, thank God it, that happened because, uh, you know, even more Jews would have died or, you know, mo- more suffering would have taken place. Adolf Hitler would have had a long term empire. Um, you know, the United Kingdom would have fallen and all of these things. So it, it we can't rule out that perspective. So I want to connect now um, uh, whether... Tolstoy's work, how does it connect to later mass mobilization efforts, um, peace movements from Gandhi to Martin Luther King to, you know, Black Lives Matter today? Can can we tell a story in which Tolstoy inspires all of these world shaking movements? 
I would actually start before Gandhi, who's who's who like encounters Tolstoy in the 1920s. Um, what happens after these Americans who are, are living in the 1820s themselves kind of squabbling about whether to prioritize abolition or peace? You can't fight the Civil War, even to end slavery. Most American pacifists in the early 18th, 19th century decide to justify violence. William Lloyd Garrison is a great example, who had been the iconic pacifist, um, but ultimately says, we have to fight this one, guys. Um, and yet in, in the later 19th century, you see a huge upsurge kind of in tandem with um, Tolstoy's effect um, of of peace movements. What happens is that most of them reject his purity and say, okay, you know, asking soldiers not to fight is not going to hack it. So what we need to do is, you know, not oppose states, but pressure states to sign peace treaties. And I think the biggest influence he has is on the philosophy of nonviolence. So that's something that's in this tradition that, you know, runs through Gandhi and, and Martin Luther King. I'll ask you to connect it one more level, which is connect it to um, norms of civility. Um, in the same way, we've seen very you know smart analysts look at the ways in which um, inequality is allowed to persist, um, all sorts of oppression is allowed to persist, um, because we politicians want you know they they insist on being nice to one another or you know that that desire to have a sanitized public sphere um ends up just hiding the suffering that's going on i guess i would say that tolstoy was not a fan of violence but he was very happy to reveal civilization as a sham and it's in this regard that Gandhi is once again his great successor. It's a famous anecdote that when asked what he thought of Western civilization, Gandhi replies, it sounds like it would be a good idea. These are figures who um, want to unmask us as liars about our own advancement morally. And I think they're enormously successful and we should continue their campaign. If you were asked at some uh, social event, how did war and peace change the world? How might you respond in, in you know, one or two sentences? It, it really does give us a sense uh, which is new of what, what art can do and what role it plays in our life. And, and really his, his most important achievements in the novel are stylistic. Um, you know, he's, he's, renowned for a, a technique that was later called defamiliarization or estrangement, which is about narrating from an unexpected point of view, which forces us to see a familiar practice as if, you know, from the point of view of an outsider. I think, you know, he, he changed for like really the whole world, our sense of, of, you know, the moral purposes art should serve, but also how precisely um, it goes about serving them. Tolstoy used this defamiliarization technique in War and Peace to illustrate the hypocrisy of what happens when we make war more humane. But his influence stretches beyond just that. 
He inspired countless nonviolent movements around the world seeking more just and peaceful societies. Tolstoy's pacifist philosophy also had a significant impact on post-World War II politics and the push for peace treaties. Many things have changed, but not all for the better. Our relentless quest to make wars more humane has only made us better at hiding their still horrific realities, such as drone strikes and forever wars. Tolstoy posed an ongoing question that we may never answer. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.